Turn again to John 9, if you will. <coughs> John chapter 9, same passage we looked at last week. We'll spend a couple more weeks in this chapter. It's an old cliche that a picture is worth a thousand words. Or I guess the school teacher's version of that is that one illustration is worth a ton of chalk. <coughs> I seem to notice that even though we live in a highly literate society, it's amazing to me how much uh, we're depending on pictures these days. Pictures are, seem to be replacing words. Walk through any new public building or an airport or something like that, and more and more, instead of uh, instructions in words, you see pictures, restrooms this way, telephone here, dining room over there, baggage claim this way, it's all pictures. You're a computer user, you certainly have seen the change over the years, what you used to do by typing a long string of letters and numbers and punctuation marks in exactly perfect sequence. Well, it's now been replaced. You pointed a picture, an icon, click. It's done. We're people of pictures. So I would uh, probably encourage you to know that God is pleased to give us pictures too. Pictures to illustrate and to explain the great truths of the gospel. And our text this morning is the description of one of those pictures, not drawn on paper, but lived out as a living drama so that people might see and understand the gospel. Let me read again. John chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. As he went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming, and no one can work. And we pick up from where we left off last week. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eye. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sin. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, is this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him, but he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eye. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. I went and washed, and then I could see. Amen. In case you missed the picture there, let me explain what's going on. One of the key words for the understanding of the Gospel of John is the word sign. Greek word samaron, sign it means. Now, the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they speak of the miracles of Jesus, they most often use words that talk about them being powerful acts, supernatural acts. They use the word typically, the Greek word dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. They say, in effect, Jesus' miracles are dynamite. Well, John, when he speaks of the miracles of Jesus, he sees them differently. When he refers to the miracles, 
he uses the word sign. Again and again, 17 times in his gospel, he uses the word sign. It's translated miracle very often, but the word is sign. Oh, John doesn't deny that they are supernatural, powerful, dynamite events, supernatural works of God, but he sees them as pointing beyond themselves, painting a picture for us of some greater spiritual truth. Not just a display of brute power, but a picture of something. Now John doesn't tell us about very many miracles, though his gospel is quite long. Though Matthew and Mark and Luke tell us of all kinds of miracle events, John tells us of only seven miracles, seven signs. Seven pictures which teach us about Jesus and his work. In our study so far, we've had five of those. Jesus changing the water to wine in chapter 2, then healing the nobleman's son, and then curing the, the lame man by the pool, and then the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus walking on the water. Five miracles is all in these first eight chapters. Along with each picture came some explanation, sometimes a lengthy discourse. For example, in chapter 6, Jesus says, Jesus uh, uh, feeds 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch, and then he goes into this lengthy discourse. And what's the point of the discourse? I am the bread of life. You saw it in the picture. Let me explain it for you. Picture and explanation together. And so now we come to picture number six, sign number six. Jesus giving sight to the man born blind. And again, this is a picture. Michael Card puts it this way, a blind man's life is about to become a powerful parable. So what exactly is the picture? We have to be careful here. Interpreting the Bible as if it were one great allegory has proved to be a wrong kind of interpretation. People have done that, but you just go into all sorts of fanciful things, which the Bible doesn't necessarily say. So we do not want to act as if this story is written in code. It has nothing to do with the blind man, but the blind means this, and the mud means this, and the saliva means this, and the pool means this. It's not written in code. It's a historical event. But at the same time, when John repeatedly calls the miracle signs, we must try to ascertain what does the Bible indicate they are signs of. Or else we've missed the point. So if we're told this story is not just for the sake of the story, though it's a great story, but it's not just for the sake of the story, it's for the spiritual truth it signifies, what are those truths? Let me suggest three things that I think we learn. Three spiritual truths that are pictured in this sign, this miracle. The first is this. Sin has blinded our souls. Sin has blinded our soul. This man's physical blindness is being used to point us to the reality of mankind's spiritual blindness. Now in verse 3, Jesus makes it crystal clear that it's not so easy to say this man sinned, therefore he's blind. No, that's not true, he says. But it is true that all blindness and sorrow and suffering and death and all of that is a result of sin in the world, the fall, the fact that sin is in God's creation. And so here, Jesus uses this man's physical blindness, which was not the result of his own particular sin, but was an indicator of the spiritual 
condition of the whole of mankind. This man's physical blindness became a picture of our spiritual blindness. Now this is true, we get this, we see it's true from the context. Spiritual blindness is all we have seen in chapter 8, since verse 12, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What have we seen? Well, we've seen that no matter what the evidence, these Jewish leaders just can't see it. They are blind to it. They will not recognize that Jesus is really the promised one sent from God. So that Jesus says, well, the scriptures testify of me. They missed the point. The Father speaks of me. They missed the point. The works that I do speak of me. They don't see it. Moses spoke of me. Abraham spoke of me. I testify to myself. I explain to you. They don't get it. Why? Why don't they understand? They are spiritually blind. So this man who Jesus comes upon gives us a picture of what Jesus is running into there. Here's a picture of what spiritual blindness looks like. We can tell by looking at his physical blindness. Blindness has made him a beggar. He's confined to a life of deprivation. Not only blind, he's poor. Has no hope. He doesn't call out, heal me, heal me. Nobody heals the blind man. In fact, blindness is the norm for him. How do you explain to a blind man what sight is, what light is? He has no concept of it. He takes no initiative with Jesus. He may not even know Jesus is there until he speaks to him. This is what spiritual blindness looks like. It's a condition we inherit from birth. We've never known anything different. We've never known what it is to have spiritual eyes. We've never known what it is to understand as God understands. To see things with God at the center of them like they really are rather than ourselves at the center like we tend to think they are. We suffer the effects of fall, of the fall, the effects of sin, and like blind men, we're helpless. We just sit unable to change ourselves. We are just like we are. The blindness brings poverty. The spiritual blindness brings moral poverty, moral bankruptcy, and we don't see it. We don't understand it. I read in a newspaper this week that someone did a study of the four major networks they said that in prime time, on the four major networks, they average over 52,000 acts of immorality and violence per year. It's over 1,000 a week in prime time on just the four major networks. And then I see some television commentator bemoaning the fact that young people are immoral and violent. And I say, what's the matter with you? You help make them that way. Can't you see it? Are you blind? Exactly, that's the point. Can't see it. Though we have moral deterioration all around us, though it's so pervasive it's ruining our own homes and ruining the lands, in the midst of it all, it occurs to no one to cry out to God and say, we're wrong, we failed, we reject." never occurs that God might be a player. Why? Because sin has blinded our souls. That's the picture that the Bible consistently picked, picked, uh, 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 the Bible consistently paints for us of our spiritual condition. We're not just reading that into this text. That's throughout the Bible, the condition of human beings in sin. For example, in Romans 1, we read, Thinking became futile. 
Their foolish hearts were dark. Claimed to be wise, they became fools. Blinding the soul. Or in 1 Corinthians 2, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them for they are spiritually discerned. Sin blinds the soul. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. Sin blinds the soul. So we conclude as Pastor Bruce Milnes wrote, the blind man represents fallen humanity. Languishing in the darkness of ignorance and sin without hope of salvation. Sin has blinded our soul. That's five years. I was reading Dr. James Boyce, who's going to be at this seminar on Saturday, and he drove this point home in rather personal terms. Let me read. He says, I wonder if that might not describe many of you. You're like the blind man. To begin with, you cannot see spiritual truth. You've heard the gospel preach. Perhaps you've even been reading the Bible as well as Christian books, but you cannot understand what it said. You cannot see Jesus. Moreover, you do not even properly value what you're missing. Since you've never understood spiritual truths, you hardly even have a sense of what they are and therefore cannot value them. Then as a consequence to this, you've not prayed to understand them. So far as you're concerned, your condition is what it is. Never going to be changed for anything. What can be said for someone in that condition? Well, there's hardly a good thing that can be said. Such a one is lost and blind and hopeless. Unless Jesus comes along. Oh, but do you see if you're that kind of person that you are exactly the kind of person that Jesus came to, to deal with here in John 9? You're exactly the kind of person through which he can demonstrate what it means that he is the light, the life-giving light of the world. And that's what he's going to do. But there's a second lesson as we move on in the story here. Not only does sin blind our souls, but Jesus' ways defy our explanation. Jesus' ways defy explanation. You know, we all like to know how things work. And some of you, for some of you, this is almost a, an obsession. Some of the guys I know, uh, it, it, you almost have to take something apart and to see how and why it does that before you'll really believe that it doesn't. The fact that it's done it ten times doesn't matter until I understand why it does it. I'm not sure it's going to do it again. You, you know who you are. 
But we're all that way a little bit, and it's made, because I know we're that way, it's made reading these uh, commentaries of people discussing what Jesus does here, it's made it very interesting. People trying to find out, now, why is it that Jesus spit on the ground? Why is it that Jesus reached down and put dirt in that spit and made mud? Why is it that Jesus put that mud on a man's eye? Why is it that he sent him to a public pool to wash? How did any of this help? What good was all of this? All of this seems absurd. What is going on? How is this working here? And after reading pages and pages of explanations, I've come to the conclusion, having read the best scholars I can find, that nobody has a clue. Why? And I don't either. Well, but you see, that is consistent with the sign character of this miracle. Here we see signified that Jesus' ways defy our explanation. Actually, it may seem worse than absurd to some of you. All these things, but you find all of this rather offensive, certainly unhygienic. Maybe unnecessary, even harmful perhaps. This business of spit and mud and such. Well, folks, God's ways are often like that. God's ways are offensive to us. The Bible speaks of the Son of God, the Messiah, hanging like a common criminal on the cross. There was a terrible offense to the Jews, and it was foolishness to the intellectual Greeks. What, what craziness. And the whole notion of that, that Jesus' blood is the only thing that can wash away sins. How crude can you be? In fact, the whole notion of sin, of hell, and the wrath of God, well, that's really rather uncool no pun intended, in our day. As is the discussion of God's election and Christ's atonement and the gift of the Spirit, what is all of this? It seems absurd. But you see, Jesus' ways always defy our explanation. He's turned everything upside down. He says, the meek will inherit the earth. Not the strong and smart and, and the skillful and arrogant and driven to meek will inherit the earth. He says the last will be first and the first will be last. He says that those who seek to save their life and hold on to it will lose it. And it's those who give themselves away and lose their life to find it. He says that he has picked not the mighty and the noble and the rich and the powerful and the educated, but the nobodies, the simpletons, the servant to do his work. In this day of slick marketing and high-tech communication, God is still pleased to call people to himself through this archaic foolishness of preaching. Preaching the same old, unsophisticated gospel message that's been preached for 2,000 years. Oh, don't be surprised that you don't understand how Jesus' work is done here. 
Way back in Isaiah's time, God said, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. You just aren't going to understand. His ways defy explanation. Or consider the command that Jesus gave to this man born blind in verse 7. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. A public pool there in Jerusalem. Well, why? What on earth might that do? Put mud on your face, go wash it off. What kind of treatment is this? Is this some ancient spa or something? Some mud plaster thing? This is absurd. Is there some healing power in that pool? Lots of people washed in that pool. Does this blind man probably took water from that pool already his whole life? What difference is it going to make to wash one more time in that pool? And yet it was a command. Go wash. You won't know whether the command has any merit until you go wash. The explanation defies. Jesus' ways defy our explanation. Reminds me of the story of Naaman, one of the great humorous stories of the Old Testament. Second Kings 5. Naaman is the commander of the king's army in Aaron. He's what we would call a four-star general. But Naaman had leprosy. There's no cure for leprosy. But in one of his raids on Israel, he took as a prisoner a young Jewish girl who now was a servant in his house. And as he's worried about his leprosy and what's he going to do, this great man who's been brought down with this terminal illness and the young Jewish girl says, oh, if you could just meet the prophet Elisha, I bet he could heal you. So he talked to his boss, the king, and they sent diplomat through diplomatic channels a thing to the king of Israel that says, we're sending Naaman over there to be healed. And the king of Israel said, what? We don't have any healing for leprosy. What do you mean, oh, we're in trouble again now? They're going to attack us? And Elisha says, send him over to my place. I'll take care of him. So Naaman and his great entourage of fitting for a great general comes and he rolls up in front of Elisha's house. And he gets out with all of the pomp and circumstance and all of his servants. And Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. He sends his servant out and says, tell Naaman go wash seven times in the Jordan and he'll be cleansed. He goes back. And Naaman is incensed. What kind of treatment is this? I came all the way here for this. He doesn't even have the common decency to come out of the house and speak to me. And the Jordan River, we have better rivers in, in Damascus. I wash in them. Forget this, I'm going home. He's mad, filled with rage. One of his servants says, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Naaman is humbled. So he takes his mighty entourage down alongside the Jordan River, crawls out, and like a fool goes out into the river, into the water. Wash. Down again, wash. Down a third time and a fourth time. Nothing's happened. Wash. Six times, nothing happened. Seventh time he comes up to his clan. God cleansed. You see, way back then, God's ways defied explanation. 
so in a similar way today, God says to sinners, believe on the Lord Jesus. By faith, receive the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. Well, see, that's too easy. I've got to get my life together here. I've got to clean up. You know, I've been meaning to read my Bible more. I've got to turn things around. If I can get things in order, maybe someday I could become a Christian. Too easy. Dr. Tasker so clearly explains Christian experience is first and foremost a willingness to accept the gift of cleansing. A truth symbolized in baptism, the first Christian sacrifice. In a word, true faith begins in obeying the command given by Elisha to Naaman. Go wash. It may not make sense to you, but God says it. Go wash. Believe on the Lord Jesus and he will cleanse you from your sins. Well, that doesn't make sense. That's too easy. There's, there's kind of more. The question is, will you believe? Will you do it? Will you be washed by Jesus? Will you, as someone said of the blind man, blindly obey the Lord Jesus? Even though you can't understand how he's going to do it, how it might make sense, if you will, call upon him and ask him. By faith, turn your heart to him and ask, Lord Jesus, cleanse my soul. not been baptized, speak to me and let's go wash as God commands. Well, one more truth signified in this miracle. And we'll pray. That's this. Only Jesus can give the light of life. Only Jesus can give the light of life. You know, the best sign in the world can't communicate very much. We tried to read a lot of things out of this little sign, this little miracle, but this one thing, it says, above and beyond everything else, that Jesus is the light of the world who gives light and life to men. He's just declared, I am the light of the world. Now he gives us a picture to illustrate. That illustration is what John calls an authenticating sign of Jesus' certain Identity. Let's explain how this sign works, how this healing of the blind man is a sign of Jesus' identity. Throughout the Old Testament, light is something that's associated with God himself. For example, we sing that little chorus from Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. That's a common thread. Isaiah says the same thing, The Lord will be my everlasting light. The Lord is the light. And, and so consequently, in the Old Testament, the giving of sight was a prerogative of God alone. God told Moses, he says, who gave man his mouth? Who can make him deaf or mute? And he goes on, who gives him sight? Who makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The Lord holds the prerogative of sight or blindness. He says the same thing in Psalm 146, the Lord gives sight to the blind. Oh, but the Old Testament goes on to say that not only is light associated with God and not only is the giving of sight a, a, a something that belongs to God, but that when the Messiah comes, when the anointed one of the Lord comes, that he will have the authority and the power to exercise 
God's prerogatives and give sight to the blind. That, that would be some sign of him being who he is. So we read in Isaiah 29, In that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of the gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. And in another place, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And sure enough, when Jesus comes, what happens? In all the miracles that Jesus does, the thing that he does more than any other thing is to give sight to the blind. That miracle is repeated more than any other kind of healing. He gives sight to the blind. What's he doing? It is a sign of the spiritual life and light that he can bring. It is, these verses are crucial precisely because they are a signal through this healing of the blind man that Jesus is who he said he was. That he is the promised Messiah, the one who has come from God with the power of light. in just these terms that the Apostle Paul speaks of the gospel. We don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ Jesus. For God who said let light shine into darkness has shined into our hearts to the gospel. You see, this is the purpose. This is what the John has been trying to do in this whole gospel, what he is continues to try to do, to show us through these signs that Jesus is the one, the promised one, the only one who can give the light of life to men. In the end of John in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John gives us the purpose of his whole gospel. Let me read these two verses. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written these, like number six, the healing of the blind. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the big truth that this sign points to. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who gives the light of life to those who believe on his name. This morning set before you Jesus the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Promised One. He alone is the answer to the spiritual darkness that permeates our souls and permeates our land. There is no other answer. You can search through the religions of the world and you will only come up with more varieties of darkness. You can add wealth and power, a whole life of, full of wealth and power, and you will only end up like with, with, with a very rich and very powerful blind man. Or you can put on your best efforts to live a religious life and follow all the traditions of the church and the tenets of Christianity, but until Jesus, the light of the world, shines in your heart with life-changing power, you will be no better than the Pharisees sophisticated blind beggars. This morning I call you to Jesus to come to him in faith to not turn away from the light though it is piercing and uncomfortable but to come to Jesus and say here am I, cleanse me. For 
He is the light of the world. He is the light of life. He is the eternal life giver. And there is nothing apart from Him. Only spiritual darkness. Pictures are not just for our entertainment or our convenience. Even the stodgest old books and manuals, when something is really important, when it really has to be communicated, they'll put a diagram, a picture, an illustration. And so this truth that Jesus is God's promised one, the light of light, the light of the world, it is just such a matter of life and death, eternal significance that God plays out a living drama using a man's life that he let be born blind and live as a blind man in order that he might show that apart from him we're spiritually blind and that though his ways of doing things defy our expectation, he alone is the one who can remove the blindness and give sight, life, light to those who Dear Father, Lord, we don't begin to know Jesus like we should. We've heard all these stories, Lord, and yet sometimes we've just gone on living in the darkness and missed the whole point. But you want to change our whole lives around. You want to change our whole way of seeing everything. You want us to call, see things as you see them, not as the rest of the world sees them, Lord. Oh, Lord, give us that kind of sight. Lord, apart from Jesus, we're like blind people. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves see. We can hear the words. We can say the words. We can't comprehend them, Lord. We can't understand them unless you give us sight. Lord, I can preach my heart out. People, it makes no difference unless you give us sight. So, dear Lord, would you be pleased this day to open our hearts to trust you cleanse our hearts from sin give sight to blind eyes of any who are sitting here in darkness give life life, eternal life that you came to give Lord we don't want to be like sophisticated blind Pharisees Lord we don't want to be rich and powerful blind men we don't want to be floundering through all the religions of the world Lord we want to know you, to walk in the light Give us eyes.